Welcome to the Lawn and Garden Podcast with University of Wyoming Extension Specialist Jeff Edwards and co-host Jerry Urshabek. Originally aired on KGOS and KERM in Torrington, join Jeff, Jerry, and their special guests as they talk all things gardening in Wyoming. Our Lawn and Garden Podcast helps you improve your home garden or small acreage. Good morning, everybody. This is Jeff Edwards and Jerry Urshabek for the KGOS KERM Lawn and Garden Program. And our guest today is Tom McCreary. And uh, we are going to spend some time talking about lawns and gardens and weeds and I think tobacco mosaic virus or something like that. Something on Tom John's agenda. But let's take a few minutes and listen to our sponsors and we'll be right back. Looking for the best way to keep up with all the news from University of Wyoming Extension? the College of Agriculture, and Wyoming Ag Experiment Stations? The uwagnews.com website features real-time education, research, and extension events, and feature stories from across the state. Bookmark uwagnews.com today and subscribe to our monthly email newsletter, uwagnews.com, growing people, knowledge, and communities. All right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the KGOS KERM Lawn and Garden Program. I'm Jeff Edwards. Jerry Urshabek is here as well. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Tom. Hi, and Tom. Guys. And Tom McCreary is our guest, and I think we're going to have a good program today. So let's get going. Tom, you had items that you wanted to talk about. Where well, do you want to start? Well, let's start with the tomatoes. Uh, I, I planted eight tomatoes and I've got, I pulled two of them because of leaf curl, which is, what's the scientific name, Jeff? So a lot of different, a lot of different things can cause that. There's a virus, there's um, a blight that affects tomatoes. So it could be any number of things. Does blossom end rot add anything to that equation? I mean, is it the same so we've talked about blossom end rot before. Blossom end rot is not actually a disease. It's the deficiency of calcium. Oh, that's really good to know because I've got a mess out there with that. <laughs> <laughs> it happens occasionally. <laughs> five tomatoes gets, I mean, that I get. Yes. So um, a lot of folks think that blossom end rot is a disease, and you would think so by the name that it has, but it also will happen in peppers, and it's a calcium deficiency. Oddly enough, our soils are very high in calcium, but there is something that is preventing the tomato from getting the adequate amount, whether it's not being watered consistently, maybe a little too much water, and it's flushing it out of the system. I don't know. It's it's kind of a weird thing. So if you can... Uh, find a way to add calcium to your soil around your tomatoes, you probably will not have blossom end rot. Very good. That really helps. Yeah. Well, that's what we're here for. (laughs) 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 At least we think so. (laughs) Don't don't they also call that a vacationer's disease? Uh, You're on on vacation and somebody's not watering or they they are watering and they're just kind of running the hose over it once or twice. Just don't wa- they don't water like you do. That's right. <laughs> Would chelated iron help to break down the calcium? Uh, that's a really good question. I don't know. I don't know the, the full chemistry behind that. I, I do know that our soils, since they're high in pH, that ties up the iron. Right. And sometimes we see iron chlorosis in a lot of our garden plants. And right. by applying iron chelate, you can improve the color and the overall health of the plant. I don't know if that would release the calcium. 
or make it more available? So uh, as far as the greenhouse plants you, you in the early spring that you get, could there be the virus tied up in for leaf curl in tomatoes? Could it be tied up in the soil they're using? So when you are purchasing greenhouse plants, the majority of the soil that they start with is usually, it's usually been sterilized in some form or another, unless you have a greenhouse that is recycling and they may not condition their soil like they need to. Right. But usually they start with brand new product each year. So the likelihood of that being tied up in the soil of greenhouse plants is minimalized, I think would probably be the best word. And it's probably something that you have in your own soil or, you know, viruses are very easily transmitted by insects with piercing sucking mouth parts. So as you know, from your days working with sugar beets, the leaf hoppers uh-huh. could transmit viruses in, in sugar beets. So the same thing can happen in tomatoes. These you might not ever see them. They might just be passing through. They might just take one little taste and move on, and that's enough to infect them. So I think it's more of a, a soil problem. I've got to get the chemistry right before we go forward. Well, and a lot of these diseases are um, soil-borne, and if we continue to grow tomatoes and related plants over and over and over again in a small place, we have a tendency to build up those diseases. It's really important to rotate away from those crops. Every three years, that's what we did when I was with Holly. The beets would normally, you know, yeah. some did two, some guys did four. Yeah, know? normally it's a three-year cycle would be sufficient. But, mm-hmm. you know, you, tomatoes are related to a lot of different things. So um, you can't plant peppers there. You can't plant eggplant there. So those types of things you need to avoid in the same uh, rotation, right? Right. So... Diane and I are constantly trying to rotate things around in our outside gardens and then our hoop house space. That's, that's even more challenging. Sorry and about as that. Well, and as well in a little small garden, it's very challenging just to put things in a different place. Right, right. So, well, that, you know, that gets back to uh, planning your garden, right? So it's, it's kind of important to make yourself a map every, after you get everything planted because come next year, do you remember where the cucumbers were at? <laughs> <laughs> I have a pretty good idea, but I could be off a row or two and uh, really mess things up. So it's important to kind of keep track of those types of things. Do I do it every year? No. Should I? Probably. You know, if if I was a better gardener, I would keep track of everything that I did and write everything down and I'm well, not that guy. <laughs> didn't didn't one of our speakers talk about having a map? There's the extension woman from Casper. Uh, Donna? Donna Hoffman. And Donna Hoffman. she recommended to have a map of your home and location and where the electrical was and where your sprinklers are. And a map of 2020 garden would be a great thing, too. And put it in that file that says, in case I'm hit by a bus. <laughs> you never know when that bus is coming either. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> we, we had sand and peat moss and regular garden soil. And I had this huge cooker. And I'd throw a third, a third, and a third. And I mean, I'd cook it. I can't remember the temperatures. It was like 200. I mean, it smelled to high heaven because of the P 
peat moss, I think. But yeah, so yeah. you were you were basically autoclaving it or sterilizing right. it, right? Trying to kill off anything. So if greenhouses are recycling their soil, they're doing the same type of thing, and that temperature should get rid of pathogens. But I I agree. You know, diseases come from a lot of different places. If they're soil borne, and you're sprinkle irrigating and you're splashing soil particles onto the leaf surfaces and the conditions are just right, sure, you could potentially have problems. So whenever you start to see a leaf wilt or that sort of thing uh, from blight, do you pull the plants really quick? Or do you (laughs) wait until they're dead, dead, dead and you go, all right, you're out of here? No, whenever we get together as master gardeners, we tell people that they have to be aggressive gardeners and get rid of things that look like they're diseased and those types of things. I attempt to do that, but I keep thinking, let's give it just a little bit longer. I have a good for instance. (laughs) This year we had a tomato plant. This was the first year that we purchased grafted tomato plants from the greenhouse. And one particular plant, which was aroma, it just looked funny to me. The The leaves looked like they like the whole plant was potentially diseased. And I kept I kept discussing with Diane, you know, uh, that plant, it just doesn't look right. And she agreed. But, you know, it had it had a healthy color. The leaves just didn't look right to me. So we ended up leaving it. And I got to tell you, it's one of the best Roma tomatoes we've ever had. <laughs> so. It's just one of those, you kind of got to develop a, a feel for it. But if I, if I know that they're diseased, then I will take them out and totally get them out of my garden and those types of things. Uh, you know, bacterial diseases, particularly in tomatoes, if you clip a portion of the stem or a portion of the leaf and you get this cloudy, sappy ooze that comes out, I don't, that's probably about the best way to describe it that is probably or highly likely a bacterial problem. You know, normally if you are, to to me, if I'm growing indeterminate tomato plants, I'm always clipping off secondary leaves, branches, whatever they might be. And when you snip those, it's a very clean cut. Usually nothing oozes out. And that's a good indicator that that is a healthy plant. So no problems there. Do you Uh, use Clorox? Do I? So... I'm operating under the assumption that all my plants are healthy. This particular tomato that I spoke of earlier was the last one that I would trim, and then I would clean up my tools. (laughs) (laughs) So my brother-in-law has an anecdotal cure for leaf curl, and he said, oh, you got to put in bone meal in and around your plant. And he says he did that, and his leaves started looking better. So I don't know. I haven't tried it. Bone meal would be primarily calcium, right? Calcium, yeah. Yeah. So he probably probably doesn't have Endrot. Right. Well, I think he was having a little of both, Endrot and and leaf wilt. And he goes, boy, my tomato plant looks good now. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's that seasonal change, right? As we get into August and these... Days are really starting to feel like fall. I hate to say that, but the but the mornings, if you get up, it's really feeling fallish to me. So this time of year, your tomato plants, the bottom leaves will start dying anyway and not looking the best. So it's kind of a normal progression of that plant to begin to put all of its energy into producing that fruit and less energy into maintaining those leaves and trying to 
complete its life cycle before the end of the season. We like to grow a lot of sunflowers, and, and the same thing happens there. Bottom leaves start to come off, and it's producing more energy to that head. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Getting ready for fall. So, Tom, John, did we answer your questions about? Yeah, really helped. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, you're welcome. There was something else that you mentioned that you wanted to t- chat about today. Tobacco mosaic in uh, cucumbers. Tobacco mosaic in cucumbers. Okay. They're starting, maybe it's just the fall, but they're starting to, and they, in the afternoon, my raised beds are right next to a brick wall and it gets hot. And so I may be starving them for water. You're just cooking them. They're not, they don't have any virus problems. You're just cooking them early. (laughs) They look like virus to me. (laughs) That's a, that's a scald problem. Right, exactly. (laughs) I saw a neighbor though, that had some cucumbers that sure look like it it, it had been burnt on Uh just three or four leaves that, and he goes, what's this? I said, hell, I don't know. (laughs) Looks bad to me. (laughs) What would you do? And I said, I'd, I'd take those leaves off. Yeah. And, yeah. But, you know, not pull the whole plant because the whole plant wasn't affected. Right. Right. Now that tobacco mosaic is, is prominent in uh, pumpkin patches as well. Yeah. Especially if you allow someone who smokes to come in and look at your pumpkins and then throws his butt down or, you know. <laughs> I'm going to come out to your house and smoke a cigar. <laughs> oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> put put that virus right into my soil for years. I don't know if that, if you rotate out of that virus or not. Uh, that I don't know. And I, you know, I always thought tobacco mosaic was one of those that was transferred by leafhoppers, but I could it be mistaken. Probably, yeah. I've always been told don't allow a smoker into your garden. And if you do, that is true. In, pack in, pack out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, put the ashtray on the edge. Or don't come in my garden with your cigarettes. <laughs> well, or the your thing cigarettes. is, you guys, is um, when I was with Holly, we, if we, we did research plots, four of them or five of them. And to get the beets sick, we just inoculated them by dropping soil into the crown. And mm. man, did they get sick. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we the soil we were using was all the Circospora leaf spot. It, oh yeah, yeah, that'd and do it. It'll do it every time. We inoculated the soil before we sprinkled it. So, it yeah, was if a, I was laying on the ground with my mouth open and somebody dropped dirt in my mouth, I wouldn't feel good too good either. <laughs> <laughs> Not so much. Hey, so uh, Jeff, I sent you a picture of a wasp. You said it was a predatory wasp. Yes, it was a very interesting wasp, I got to tell you. And I couldn't get a quarter next to him because he he really didn't want his picture taken. I'd get get set up and he'd fly. And so I I don't know why, but this one allowed me to take his picture. And I know that they don't harm you because one landed on Myrna's ankle and she tap danced like crazy and it didn't sting her, didn't do nothing. But it had a really long tail that when it flies it flies with the tail extended when it was a black it was it is i've seen him Uh it had a really long abdomen at first i thought that was ovipositor but that was just its abdomen in sections and i can so there's a uh there's a website it's called um bugguide.net and i have an idea what family that particular wasp falls into 
And I can send you a link to that so you can look at it a little bit more. But they um, they don't sting humans. They're parasites of other things. So they're beneficials to have around. Yeah, they're 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 fun to watch because when they land, that that abdomen curls underneath them like a C, as in cat. And right. and man, if you could have seen Myrna dancing, because <laughs> most of the time that's when you get stung is when you're dancing away, swatting at the swatting at the bee or the wasp or whatever, and they go ow, dancing you know, like and, nobody's watching, like nobody's <laughs> like it's 1999. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and wish we could have had a video of that. So, yeah, they're 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 kind of nice. I I really like those uh, other predatory wasps that we have that make a little small dirt volcano. Uh, right. Some people like to sweep that out, and I try my best to leave that little volcano alone these days. Well, and and um, it, it's really important to understand that those things are very effective predators on. Um, grasshoppers. So everybody complains about the grasshoppers and then they complain about the wasps. Well, the wasps are doing us a favor by uh, taking care of the grasshoppers. So yeah. Do they sting them? Do they, how do they, yeah. how do they capture a wasp? Yeah. So they, they do, grasshopper. they do have a stinger and they will paralyze the grasshopper. So it's basically a live food item for the larva that they lay an egg on. They won't sting humans. I don't, I haven't ever heard of or had one of those sting. Uh, so I don't, uh, I'm fairly certain. But again, if you harass a wasp, <laughs> they could potentially sting you. <laughs> yep. I, I grew up on a small farm uh, north of Guernsey and we had a water tank for the cows and I would harass yellow jackets. Way to go. And I can, I can attest. You harass the yellow jacket and he'll, he'll come after you. And there's a good possibility of being stung. Have you ever looked at their faces close up? They just look angry. They just look <laughs> like they're waiting to, to come after you. It's like, leave me alone. I have an attitude. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. They're an angry, they're an angry insect. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it doesn't take much. All you got to do is lean back on them and they'll sting you pretty good. My, we went to Thermopolis and my brother, was drinking a, a soda out of a glass bottle. And of course he wasn't looking and he raised the glass bottle to his lip and he got his lower lip and he cried and, and raised the fuss and cause you know, it hurt. And, uh, it wasn't, I'm, I'm assuming this was when you were younger or was this oh, last yeah. week? <laughs> last weekend. Uh, <laughs> no, it's when we were quite young. And okay. so 15 minutes later, he raised the bottle to his lip again and, got his upper lip. So <laughs> both of his lips are just so big and swollen. And he always now covers his pop or, you know, especially around Thermopolis because he remembers that item. It's funny how um, traumatic childhood events impact the rest of your life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and everybody remembers that event differently. Right. To you, it was no big deal. To him, it was the end of the world, man. Well, sometimes the event unfolds differently in one person's mind than the other. And when you repeat that story, you were out in the front yard. Oh no, you were out in the backyard. We've had several of those events. Hey, uh, so what do you guys got going on in your turf right now? Any, uh, any issues? Well, I had a dog here for a month and a half. And uh, that could be an issue. It was a female dog and uh, I've got a lot of brown spots. <laughs> I guess you can, that doesn't count though. That's, 
and I've uh, my lungs well, good. And sure does. People, people ask about brown spots caused by dogs and how to get rid of them and those types of things. And really, it's just it, it would be the same thing as if you excessively fertilized with nitrogen, right? Only uh-huh. it's highly concentrated in little bitty spots. So what you can do is water those spots and try to work that nitrogen through the system. Uh, if you have a matting type of grass, it should fill in by the end of the summer if the dog's been removed. If you want a little faster response, I guess you can go back in with a uh, seed and seed over that and keep it well watered and it should it should clear up. But, you know, turf, since we've been warm, turf has been kind of been a little bit stressed if you haven't been watering it correctly, right? So we've been watering our lawn and... I think it's just been an invitation for these voles. He is in vicious. victory. Yeah, victory. I want victory over the voles. <laughs> and so I mentioned that to Gary Stone last week. Right. And he sent me some links. And one is exclusion. You can kind of put chicken wire around a plant, a particular plant that they may be going after. Uh, you can put poison in their, their runs. And we talked about uh, putting a plastic pipe in to their hole so that birds don't get it your cats don't dig it up and and eat it but it also suggested coyote or fox pee really coyote or fox urine and i'm thinking isn't that how you attract coyotes is by (laughs) by (laughs) using a urine no, I don't. I don't believe that that's an attractant. I think that would be uh, equivalent to marking your territory. <laughs> okay. So anyway, <laughs> I've asked several, you know, people in the predatory board, predatory area, and trappers. Uh, apparently, there's a you know, if a trapping company, they'll sell coyote or fox urine, or they also said cayenne pepper. So I think I'm going to plant a bunch of cayenne pepper next year and. Mix up my own. Oh, you're going to mix your own cocktail, aren't you? Yep. My own spray. Jerry, the ornithologist talked about using cayenne pepper to control squirrels. Doesn't bother the birds. Right. You kind of get two birds with one stone. (laughs) (laughs) Two two rodents with one stone. Two rodents. (laughs) Yeah. So I I think I'm going to water in cayenne pepper and. And yeah. uh, I, we don't have any, we have periodic kids that come by our house and, you know, we can just time that out by putting it on. And I think that'd be one of those things you just have to repeat that process. Right. The right. urine is supposed to make them nervous that there's a predator around and they reproduce far less and perhaps drive them over to the neighbor's house. Yeah, that's what you want to do. Get them over to the neighbors. Yeah, yeah, you always want to send stuff to the neighbors. (laughs) So they talked about castor oil, putting castor oil on your lawn, or I guess you could put castor oil and cayenne on your garden. Uh, Not so much about the urine on your garden. They say more of the urine was more of a borderline around your property. Oh, sure. Sure. Jerry at our house, we never complained about a stomach ache because my mother would give us castor oil, so I was never sick. (laughs) Yeah, I'm fine. 
There's other childhood memories of that as well. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm fine. I'm good. I don't need uh, anything. No, I y- yesterday I had a. Uh, I'm I'm good. <laughs> I'll go to school. Run out to the bus, you know. <laughs> yeah. So um, our turf, I have to say, has recovered a little bit after our um, inch or two, depending on where you're at of uh, rainfall that we got about ten days ago. I had some spots that were really struggling, and they seem to be perking up, which is a good thing. I'm still contemplating uh, if we have time this fall to do an aeration and fertilization in the fall to try to get things a little bit uh, healthier before we go into winter. What about thatching? Oh, yeah, yeah. So in Wyoming, where we live, dethatching is, to me, is wasted effort and unnecessary. And we've had other folks on the radio on the show that have talked about that as well. Uh, we don't have or don't you generally build up large amounts of thatch where we are. Well, if, the if, thatch is good, isn't it, Jeff? I mean, yeah, it's um, organic matter. Right. It's good to a point, you know, in the Midwest where they have thatch and need to dethatch. In the end, if it's really thick, it actually prevents water from getting to the deep roots and then uh-huh. the roots start growing up higher and higher. So, okay. but where we are, all that organic matter that you're putting back, you're actually um, putting back nitrogen into the system, you know, and and so our organic matter content is so low anyway that anything that you can put back in your turf is a good idea. Now, Jeff, when should I fall fertilize? I, I, I don't really know. I, I mean, it's one of those deals where I kind of go out there with a spreader if it's going to rain. And uh... Yeah, so... <sighs> Fall fertilization is a, a tricky, tricky business to me, right? Because you don't want to stimulate a lot of growth and then we get a freeze or we get a really cold spell or it's winter. So, and yet we don't want to fertilize in the heat of the summer either. So I think what I would do would be a really light you know, not a normal, typical early spring type fertilization, but do a lighter version, probably the first part of September so that it has time to get in. Your turf grows a little bit and it's good and healthy before you go into winter. Good to know. That's now, that's when I would do it. I think it comes down to personal business, <laughs> your personal choice, I guess. But that's just me, right? Now for... for uh all the perennial weeds that fall fertilization is also the time to do your weed killing or spread spreading weed killer or spraying weed killer. Uh, so in the fall, For dandelions and stuff. Well, yeah, dandelions. So in the fall, everything's going to seed, right? So if you haven't taken care of it by September, you are not going to take care of it. And, and actually right now in August, after that rain that we had, those new weeds have germinated. They've only grown about two inches and they're blooming and putting on seed. So it's, it's one of those things that you're probably not going to win at this point. But October would be a really good time. And it's actually the best time to control dandelions in turf. Because what happens is that after there's a frost or a light freeze event, that dandelion is taking as much nutrients as it possibly can from the crown of the plant into the roots. 
And if you hit it with 2,4-D in the fall, it'll it's taken all that material down into the roots and it's killing it. So dandelions are perennial. And if you can take care of them then, it, it makes a world of difference next spring. And would that be perennial weeds as well then that, uh, not, that show up in your garden? Yeah, not so I much. Mean, garden or, or your lawn? Yeah. To me, if you have a perennial weed problem, well, excuse me, let, let's back up. So if you're talking, last week you were kind of mentioned some Canada thistle and some some of those types of things. A fall application for Canada thistle when you're hitting those rosettes, it's a good time to um, apply herbicide then. But if you have perennial weeds that are shrubby, brushy, I guess a lot of different things fall in that category. If you wait for them to put on that new spring growth and hit them then, you're probably going to get a little better control. I don't know, Tom, John, well, how do, what are your thoughts on that? I don't have any. No, <laughs> I agree. I mean, and the October thing, when I took Master Gardener class, they talked about wait until October to, because you're absolutely right, Jeff, those plants are trying to get enough energy going for the spring. And if you hit them, it's usually a pretty good thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I usually get a, Oh, a handful of phone calls. You know, I got dandelions in my yard in the springtime. How, how do I take care of them? How do I get rid of them? Well, at that point, digging is going to be the best option, hand removal. You can spray them, but it usually just makes them mad. And then they show up later in the year again. And then if you waited until October and took care of them, you'd have much better control. And chickweed. I had a ton of it this year. It comes on late. And okay. uh, and I, I sprayed it and it, I got a good kill on it, but you always have escape plants. Right. You know? So you gotta, you gotta keep on it to get the lawn shaped up. So describe chickweed. It's a little tiny. I think it has a yellow flower. Okay. But you don't spray it before it flowers or it just spreads seed. So is it, a, is a it a really, tiny. it's really tiny plant. It's uh, yeah. Okay. Grows low to the ground. Right, right. And it's uh, it's easy to control if you spray it early or midsummer, I think. Is that correct, Jeff, do you think? I don't seem to have that as a problem, so I don't know <laughs> I don't know what it would be, but it would be a it, you know, a broadleaf herbicide would take care of it. The the one that I have issues with um is um prostrate spurge, which oh, okay. is a which is a low flat you know, mowing doesn't work and it produces a whole lot of seeds. And I think it's, um, I think it's resistant to 2,4-D. And it's interesting. Some plants are tolerant. Some of them are resistant. So it's kind of one of those things that's really difficult to get out of a turf. Do they still uh, sell Banville? Yes, they do. Banville is, uh, is by Banville dicamba. Is it the same thing? I, you know, I don't know. Dicamba is bad stuff. Well, so um, so there are uh, formulations of dicamba and 2,4-D that you can apply to your turf that would take care of a lot of these um, difficult uh, situations. But they are products that have been premixed and specifically labeled for turf. So make sure, make you know, the important thing is that if you choose to use pesticides, read the label and make sure that you're following and applying them correctly. Well, so. Jeff, the thing is, uh, when I was with Holly, the... Well, the guy would spray Banville and 2,4-D on something, and the guy would have a bean field next door, another oh, farm. Yeah. And I, you want to talk about damage. It volatilizes. Yeah. Well, it, Esther and the amine group of 2,4-D 
one i can't remember which one but it's real volatile this is the, the, the ester yeah okay and caused real problems with your neighbor you know if you had so you know, in the news the last three years, the guys in the south and uh, east right. Right. have really been having issues with um, dicamba yeah. volatility and drift and those types of things because um, the seed companies released dicamba tolerant soybeans, right. and the primary reason that they did that was to provide another tool to control uh, Palmer amaranth, which is a type of pigweed that is resistant to a whole bunch of different chemistries. Mm -hmm. But what happened is that there were millions of acres that were damaged by drift and, and um, on uh, neighboring crops and non-crop trees and those types of things. And uh, just this spring, the EPA revoked all those registrations of dicamba to be used on uh, soybeans. So just because of that issue. So yes, dicamba, 2,4-D, the volatility of those things. And, you know, people don't think about this, but if something volatilizes, it's changing from a solid to a vapor. Yeah. And in our wind and in our situation where we live, that vapor is still active and can travel for miles. And, yeah. you know, and, and impact things in our gardens miles away from where it was applied. So uh, one of the things we have as uh, gardeners, we will call the extension office and say, hey, my, uh, my plants look kind of funny. My, my bean plants, I, I can't, I don't know what happened to them. And well, there could have been some type of 2,4-D or product applied someplace and it could have volatilized and got into your crop which is unfortunate yeah we've had that happen before with roses the neighbor had sprayed and and it came up and over our six foot fence and then just dropped and you know we go where did that come from and we looked across and the, all the weeds were dead and dying and we go yep that's it my okay. dad once, was, was, once again blame the neighbor jerry there you go uh, <laughs> well it works well it works so much better if you blame the neighbor wait a minute uh, did you get along with your neighbors i gotta ask oh yeah <laughs> for the for the most part yeah okay a situation where a neighbor came over to my house and he had the you know there are only about 10 or 12 oak trees in the whole town of Trenton. they're hard to get going and this was a beautiful tree and I looked, he says, my oak tree is, is dying. And you could see the swirl. Yeah. Well, his neighbor had used weed and feed just across the fence. And I mean, that tree was awfully dead quickly. And so you got to be real careful when you're spraying that you don't. Yeah. Whatever so, you're doing, uh, so down. The, the spiral that you're talking about, Tom John, is very indicative of that type of uh, herbicide injury on trees. So uh, what Tom is talking about is if you happen to see a sick tree where it has a circle of or a spiral of dead leaves going up to the tip where it has intermixed with areas that are still green because the the cambium layer as it goes up the tree it twists Okay, in a around that particular tree. And so if you have an area that's been poisoned of that tree feeding a particular side of the tree, that damage will show up in a spiral. 
And a couple of years ago uh, in Lingle, there was a pine tree that was right on the alleyway. And I don't know what the situation was, but it had a dead spiral going up it and they eventually took it out because it killed the whole tree. But uh, that is very indicative of a herbicide injury. And it affects uh, conifers and deciduous trees. It affects them all. I mean, there's not, I mean, it's a really bad deal. So when you're right. spraying, make sure you look up and, uh, and see where the drip line on that tree is. So you well, don't, even if it's the neighbor's tree, you know, make sure you're not spraying the neighbor. Yeah. And that's the primary reason why I'm not a big fan of uh, weed and feed products. I'm not either. You know, if you're going to control your weeds, control your weeds. If you're going to fertilize your lawn, <laughs> fertilize your lawn. You really got to be careful. And also note the temperature. My dad sprayed on a very calm day and underneath the trees to the south of our house. And it killed the weeds, but it was such a, a calm day, but it was warm. And it was in the 80s, you know, it's like 85, 86 or something. And it just volatized straight up and it killed those trees dead. Yeah. So 85, I think, is about the cutoff, right? Yeah. You really got to go morning. You got to go when the wind's not blowing. Uh, You got to be a good neighbor and and realize that maybe some of these things might happen. And there are some neighbors that reach across the fence to get, you know, somebody else's weeds. To spray your roses. <laughs> thinking they're doing a good job. That, that was just a, that was just a, it is what it is and it happened, right? Sure, and sure. So, and it wasn't me that was spraying my own roses, you know, because um, I leave that spraying to somebody else that has personal protection equipment yeah. on them. Yeah. See, I, I spot spray, you guys. I don't, I don't broadcast. I just, there's no reason in the world, and I know I get more escapes that way, uh, undesirable weeds in my yard, but I don't, you know, a, a, even a slight breeze, mostly close to your garden, you sure the heck don't want to yeah. bugger the yeah. garden. And, I, and that's just a suggestion. A lot of people like to do it the other way, but I, I don't. Gentlemen, we've been on a little bit of a roll and I've forgotten to uh, take a break for our sponsors. So let's do that right now and we'll be back and continue our conversation. You are listening to the Lawn and Garden Podcast, presented by University of Wyoming Extension, extending the land-grant mission across the state of Wyoming with a wide variety of educational programs and services. Visit us at yoextension.org. If you have an interest in gardening and want to help your community grow, the University of Wyoming Extension Master Gardener Program is for you. A new 14-week training session begins September 3rd. This session will be virtual, so anyone across the state is welcome to join. To sign up, visit the bit.ly link in this episode's description, or visit yoextension.org and click Programs Master Gardener. Registration is $75. The Master Gardener Program. Learn. Give. Grow. All right. Welcome back to the KGOS KERM Lawn and Garden Program. I'm Jeff Edwards and Jerry Urshabek, uh, your hosts today. And our uh, third host in training is Tom McCreary. 
<laughs> who joins us today. In the event that one of us is not here, we uh, I don't know if he knew that or not, but he was going to fill in for me a little bit uh, this summer, but my plans have changed. So uh, it, that still may happen at some point, Tom. Well, it's always fun being on the show, you guys. I have a ball. Or, like, or if one of us get hit by a bus. Or if one of us gets hit by a bus. Oh, yes. Yep. Yes. Way to way to bring that conversation back around. <laughs> I have a request now. Okay, Zach, the bird guy, the ornithologist. Yes, we gotta have him back, and then Amy, the tree lady that I thought I knew a lot about trees and don't know squat. I mean, both of them were just awesome. So good news, Tom. Amy, the tree lady, Amy Seiler. Right, she'll Amy be with Seiler. us. She'll be with us in two weeks. Oh, awesome. And Zach, we don't have plans to have him right back right away, but we do have one of his coworkers online for September 15th, I believe. Oh, um, good, good, good. Uh, Jacqueline Downey from the Audubon of the Rockies will be with us again on September 15th. Super. That'll be great. I just thought I'd mention that because both, not that I don't enjoy all the programs, you guys, but those were, <laughs> I learned something, you know? And <laughs> those are exceptional. I just thought it's like uh, lilacs, Jerry. I, I've been cutting the uh, suckers off for years, and I'm about ready to just kill my lilacs. Just get rid of them. I, <laughs> <laughs> my plan to um, aggressively prune them to get rid of the pests that I have. I got so far and didn't work. Now I've got suckers that are coming up and need to get in there and trim them all off. And I don't know. I just, so, yeah, Amy had told us that she she likes to keep the suckers and trim off the old dead or the older wood in a in one of those bushes or trees. That that was fascinating. I I, I didn't realize that. And Jerry, you were right. And it just irritates the crap. Out. Yeah, I know how it irritates <laughs> the crap out of you. <laughs> oh, oh, that you were right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He 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 tries not to disagree with me, and I. I try not to disagree with him, but just sometimes it happens. So here's something that, that I saw just the other day. I was next to a person that was giving a Iris fan to another person. And uh, I saw that there was some writing on the bottom of the fan in a black magic marker. And I said, could I see that? And it, was, it was the color of the Iris. It was how tall it was, and uh, it might have even been genius and stuff. But I thought, how how cool is that? Because, you know, if you try to tag an iris at, I don't know, I lose my tag or it falls off, I forget what the iris looked like. And so, you know, hey, here's a yellow iris. And, you know, come to find out, they say, how did that yellow iris grow? And he goes, yeah, it was white. Or, yeah, it was purple. <laughs> so it was a great way to identify an iris, easy, cheaply, and I thought it was just a neat idea. So I'm a little confused. They actually wrote on the leaves of the plant, the fan coming out oh, of the correct. root. Okay. Correct. So was it in the ground or was it? Just above the ground. So the, the, he cut it in a, in a fan like this yes. uh, so that it's more like an arrow on right. both sides. And on some of the bottom leaves that were still green, he wrote what the plant was and what color it was. Well, that's so just right in. That's, that's just genius. I <laughs> thought that was great. You know, and I'm like, going, okay, so where's your tag? What color is it? And I'm like, he goes, look. 
<laughs> and I said, okay. So I said, that is really great. So it wouldn't wash off if you have a black magic marker. Yeah. And, and in uh, the spring, it would still be there in the dead foliage, right? Yeah. yeah. And I That's thought, just, what a great idea. Yeah. No yeah, kidding. I have, I have to tell you, uh, the Irish you gave me for the new yeah. house. Yeah. Um, it didn't bloom this year. There's, I, I planted some under the apricot trees. And then I've got those maybe trees out front. And it needs more sunshine. So I'm going to prune the heck out of the trees and so I can get a little sunshine back there. Not much, you guys. I'm just being facetious. Pr- pruning oh. the heck out of the trees just to get iris to grow doesn't sound like a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> what, was, what was our thing when uh, we had Lucinda with us? Uh, don't plant your peonies where the sun don't shine. That's right. correct. <laughs> oh, and, and an update on that peonies. They look really sick. Oh. Uh, oh. That I had, I moved. I moved some peony and I watered the hole that it was going into. I really tried to be careful with it. They didn't like the move, but I'll, they have, never to do. Re- I'll have to report next year on how the peony survived. I now, think it did indeed survive. Now there's a symbiotic relationship with ants and peonies. So you need to take the ants when you move them because <laughs> Don't you think? Aunt Joan, show up. Aunt Myrtle, Aunt Beth. <laughs> they'll, they'll all show up. Um, uh, give it three years, Jerry. Okay. Don't expect well, yeah. Don't expect a lot next year either. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. What colors do you have, Jerry? Pink he didn't write it on the white. plant. He doesn't know. <laughs> uh, they're pink and white. Awesome. Yeah. I like the I like those colors, not the white, of course, because I don't. Like yeah, them. I know you. I know you don't like white iris either. That's the color. That's the color of that iris he gave you. I'm <laughs> telling you, it's going to be white. Yeah. Wouldn't that be honorary? <laughs> I like. Not only do I like those colors, but I also like the burgundy and the red. Yeah, they're, they're beautiful. Yeah. Now my favorite is the yellow, so uh, I'm, I'm a little partial. Yeah, it's all good. And everybody has their favorite. Well, mm-hmm. I keep telling you, Diane's got a bunch of yellow ones here, and if she wants to give them away, she's sending them to your house. Pick me. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to t- ants with them. Yeah. Bring, bring what with her? <laughs> the ants. Oh, because the iris is a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> so somebody told me that they had they dug up all their onions and put them in a bucket, and now they're all mush. Because so, they put them in a bucket. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. So when I took care of my onions, the onions, the, the leaves fell down on their own and we picked them and we cut off the leaf and we put them in a small wheelbarrow to give them a little sunshine that was in the shade. And we put, oh, and I did my garlic at the same time. And so uh, I cut off my stems of my garlic and laid them across my garlic and my onions kind of like a little shade cloth. And then I put the whole wheelbarrow underneath a, an awning. So hopefully that that gives them a little bit of sun, a little bit of wind, a little bit of drying time in order to help put your onions into a, a location in which to store them. Now, if, if you have a what's called a soft neck or a tight neck on the onion, a tight neck will winter better than a soft neck. Mm. Same can be said about garlic. So the garlic, if it's a if it's a real hard 
stem going down into your bulbules as opposed to like elephant garlic. Elephant right. garlic will have a soft neck. It doesn't store well. So Vidalia's, they're really nice and sweet, but they don't store well. So right. in sweet Spanish, most of those have a tighter neck, and a sweet Spanish will winter better than a soft neck. So there's a – oh, I'm sorry, Tom. There's a gentleman that produces a lot of onions, and I think what he does is um, instead of digging them and – picking them up right away, he pulls them out of the ground and just leaves them lay for a day or two right on top of the soil surface in the garden so that they have a chance to harden off, dry up a little bit. And then exactly. and it may be, it may even be longer than that. I'm not sure, but then he'll go back through and trim off the leaves and, and uh, put them in storage. So, but if you pick your onions and put them in a bucket or a basket, they'll, they'll just rot quickly. Yes. Jerry, you and I, we talked earlier in another program about my onion crop and how I was having no success. And this year, my friend Butch Punk gave me purple onions. And I mean, they're huge. I mean, and, and I've always had these little stinkers that didn't make any difference. So it was soil type. Same with my carrots. I've got real straight carrots. And remember how I told you they sprangled? Right. Soil type. The soil was too tight. And uh, anyway... Really nice to have decent onions. And decent uh, carrots. And decent yeah. carrots. I mean, there's nothing worse than eating a sprangled carrot. No. <laughs> well, you got to gnaw all over that. <laughs> I know it. <laughs> so, hey, uh, Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, we're getting close to wrapping up here, I think, for the day. And uh, I was curious to know if you guys knew of anything going on in the county that uh, we should let people know about. I have something that, uh, uh, of course, saved the date for October 3rd, Giant Pumpkin Contest. Over the past weekend, I was able to see two pumpkins that are most likely contenders. Wow. For the Giant Pumpkin. This thing is probably about two and a half to three feet wide and two and a half feet tall. And here so we're probably in, growing in Goshen County, just outside of Goshen County to the East. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I think that they're going to be a contender for the giant pumpkin contest. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. 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 So uh, October uh, the 3rd. other thing I've seen people are growing some hibiscus. And they're red, white, and pink. You are, Jeff? I have hibiscus. Man, do you have problems with spider mites? No. In your hibiscus? Do you have a special kind? Uh, they're hardy hibiscus. Hardy. And um, we have one that is uh, green foliage and one that is purple foliage. Cool. The one that is green foliage, the flowers are white with red centers. The ones with purple foliage are pink with red centers. Awesome. That yeah. sounds great. I love those hibiscus. Yeah, I they do too. My son lives in Omaha and they grow really well there because of the humidity, I believe, and more rain. Yeah, they do fine here. Um, the, the biggest problem, uh, not spider mites, but white flies. But, uh, but we don't have that problem here, right? It's uh, more of a Eastern thing. And also the dang um, Japanese beetles, which we don't have here, but they're close, unfortunately. They love them. <laughs> <laughs> but, but for now, 
If you're interested in growing hibiscus, if you find hardy hibiscus varieties, they will survive here. Maybe try to protect them a little bit. Don't plant them on the uh, windswept plain without any protection because they will not survive. And it's interesting because they um, overwinter, they'll drop all their leaves. That main stem will actually dry up. So you look, it'll, it'll look like you have um, oh, four or five sticks just up out of the ground and they can be three or four feet tall. And uh, all of that material in the springtime, once you start seeing new growth, all the old can be trimmed off. And it's a really pithy wood type of thing that uh, from the plant. So I really like them. I think they're really interesting plants. The flowers are generally plate size when they open up. Sometimes they're just absolutely huge. Do you get hummingbirds coming to them? Hummingbirds, not so much, but other pollinators, other insect pollinators. Yeah. I think it's because they uh, they don't have nectaries like some of the other flowers around that we have, um, but the pollinators really like them. Yeah. So it sounds kind of like the butterfly bushes that we grow. We have one variety, but the hummingbird really likes him. Yeah, the butterfly bushes, uh, they have that deeper necked flower. Mm-hmm. So uh, hummingbirds will actually seek out those, I think. But they will they will die back kind of like what you're saying the hibiscus does and and it come up from the ground and and you go oh you're back yeah yeah yep very very similar type of growth habit although the uh, stems are not as the stems on hibiscus are not as tough as uh butterfly bushes okay all right hey next week next week remind me to talk about mallow common mallow tom you know what i'm talking about don't, Jeff. Oh, okay. Uh, how about Venice mallow? Do you know what that is? I don't. All right. Well, it's weed. <laughs> oh, but, okay. I, but I had to do some research for another program, and I it, it's, an, it's an interesting plant. There's some interesting oh, history cool. that goes along with it. So, awesome. so uh, we are hey, running up against our – go ahead. I got one more thing to tell you. I've seen a lot of monarchs with people that have milkweed. Excellent. And uh, so plant that milkweed and, and you'll get some monarch butterflies. They seem to thrive with milkweed. Well, they are host specific. They do only eat milkweed. So um, it's very important to have milkweed around if you want to have monarch butterflies. Absolutely. All right. So with that, I think we have burnt up another hour of your precious time. Thank you all for listening to us. Uh, Jeff Edwards and Jerry Urshabek and Tom John McCreary for the KGOS KERM Lawn and Garden Program. You've been listening to Lawn and Garden with University of Wyoming Extension Specialist Jeff Edwards and co-host Jerry Urshabek. Thanks for listening. 